Chapter 5 Training for Special Forces soldiers takes two weeks. Gabriel Brahe began the training of Jared's squad, formerly the 8th Training Squad, by asking its members a question. What makes you different than other human beings? he asked. Raise your hand when you have the answer. The squad, arrayed in a ragged semicircle in front of Brahe, was silent. Finally, Jared raised his hand. We're smarter, stronger, and faster than other humans, he said, remembering the words of Judy Curie. Good guess, Brahe said, but wrong. We are designed to be stronger, faster, and smarter than other humans, but we're that way as a consequence of what makes us different. What makes us different is that alone among humans we were born with a purpose, and that purpose is simple, to keep humans alive in this universe. The members of the squad looked around at each other. Sarah Pauling raised her hand. Other people helped to keep humans alive. We saw them on Phoenix Station on our way here. But they weren't born for it, Brahe said. Those people you saw, the real born, are born without a plan. They're born because biology tells humans to make more humans, but it doesn't consider what to do with them after that. Real born go for years without the slightest clue what they're going to do with themselves. From what I understand, some of them never actually figure it out. They just walk through life in a daze and then fall into their graves at the end of it. Sad and inefficient. You may do many things in your life, but walk through it in a daze will not be one of them, Brahe continued. You are born to protect humanity, and you are designed for it. Everything in you, down to your genes, reflects that purpose. It's why you are stronger and faster and smarter than other humans. Brahe nodded toward Jared. And why you are born as adults, ready to fight quickly, effectively, and efficiently. It takes the Colonial Defense Forces three months to train real-born soldiers. We do the same training and more in two weeks. Steve Seaborg raised his hand. Why does it take the real-born so long to train? he asked. Let me show you, Brahe said. Today is the first day of training. Do you know how to stand at attention or other basic drill maneuvers? The members of the training squad looked at Brahe blankly. Right, Brahe said. Here come your instructions. Jared sensed his brain flooding with new information. The perception of this knowledge sat thickly upon his consciousness, unorganized. Jared sensed his brain pal funneling the information into the right places, the now familiar unpacking process launching branching paths of information that connected with things that Jared, now a full day old, already knew. Now Jared knew the military protocols of parade drilling. But more than that came an unexpected emotion that arose natively in his own brain and was amplified and augmented by the integrated thoughts of his training squad. Their informal array in front of Brahe, with some standing, some sitting, and some leaning back on the steps of their barracks, felt wrong, disrespectful, shameful. Thirty seconds later they were in four orderly rows of four, standing at attention. Brahe smiled. You got it on the first try, he said. Parade rest. The squad shifted into parade rest position, feet apart, hand behind backs. Excellent, Brahe said. At ease. The squad visibly relaxed. If I told you how long it takes to train Realborn to do just that much, just as well as you did, you wouldn't believe me, Brahe said. 
Real born need to drill, to repeat, to practice again and again to get things right, to learn to do the things that you will learn and absorb in one or two sessions. Why don't the real born train this way? asked Alan Milliken. They can't, Brahe said. They have old minds set in their ways. They have a hard enough time just learning to use a brain pal. If I tried sending them the drill protocols like I just sent to you, their brains simply couldn't handle it. And they can't integrate. They can't share information between themselves automatically like you do, and like all special forces do. They're not designed for it. They're not born to it. We're superior, but there are real-born soldiers, Stephen Seaborg said. Yes, Brahe said. Special forces are less than one percent of the entire CDF fighting force. If we're so good, why are there so few of us? asked Seaborg. Because the real-born are scared of us, Brahe said. What? asked Seaborg. They doubt us, Brahe said. They've bred us for the purpose of defending humanity, but they're not sure we're human enough. They've designed us to be superior soldiers, but they worry our design is flawed. So they see us as less than human and assign us the jobs they fear might make them less than human. They make just enough of us for those jobs, but no more than that. They don't trust us because they don't trust themselves. Well, that's stupid. Seaborg said. That's ironic, Sarah Pauling said. It's both, Brahe said. Rationality is not one of humanity's strong points. It's hard to understand why they think that way, Jared said. You're right, Brahe said, looking at Jared. And you've unintentionally hit on the racial flaw of the special forces. Real born have a hard time trusting the special forces, but special forces have a hard time understanding the real born. And it doesn't go away. I'm eleven years old. A sharp pinging of amazement ricocheted through the squad. None of them could conceive of being that ancient. And I swear to you, I still don't get the real born most of the time. Their sense of humor, which you and I have discussed, Dirac, is only the most obvious example of this. This is why, in addition to physical and mental conditioning, special forces training also includes specialized training into the history and culture of the real-born soldiers you will meet, so you can understand them and how they see us. Seems like a waste of time, Seaborg said. If the real-born don't trust us, why should we protect them? It's what we were born to do, Brahe said. I didn't ask to be born, Seaborg said. And you're thinking like a real-born, Brahe said. We are human too. When we fight for humans, we fight for ourselves. No one asks to be born, but we are born and we are human. We fight for ourselves as much as for any other human. If we don't defend humanity, we'll be just as dead as the rest of them. This universe is implacable. Seaborg lapsed into silence, but his irritation broadcast itself. Is this all we do? Jared asked. What do you mean? Brahe said. We are born for this purpose, Jared said. But can we do something else, too? What do you suggest? Brahe asked. I don't know, Jared said. But I'm only a day old. I don't know much. This got pings of amusement and a smile from Brahe. We are born to this, but we're not slaves, Brahe said. We serve a term of service. Ten years. After that... We can choose to retire, become like the real born and colonize. There's even a colony set aside for us. Some of us go there. 
Some of us choose to blend in with the real-born in the other colonies, but most of us stay with the special forces. I did. Why? Jared asked. It's what I was born for, Brahe repeated, and I'm good at it. You're all good at it, or will be soon enough. Let's get started. We do a lot of things faster than real-born, Sarah Pauling said, dipping into her soup. But I'm guessing that eating isn't one of them. If you ate too fast, you'd choke. That'd be funny, but it would also be bad. Jared sat across from her at one of the two mess tables assigned to the 8th training squad. Alan Milliken, curious about the differences between real-born and special forces training, discovered that real-born trained in platoons, not squads and that special forces training squads were not the same size as squads in the CDF. Everything that Milliken learned on the subject was sent to the other members of the 8th and added to their store of information. Thus, another benefit of integration made itself known. Only one member of the 8th had to learn something in order for all the other members to know it. Jared slurped at his own soup. I think we eat faster than real-born, he said. Why is that? Pauling said. Jared took a big spoonful of soup. Because if they talk and eat soup at the same time, this happens, he said, drooling soup out of his mouth as he spoke. Pauling put her hand to her mouth to stifle a laugh. Uh-oh, she said, after a second. What? Jared said. Pauling glanced left, then right. Jared looked around and saw the entire mess hall looking at him. Jared belatedly realized that everyone could, in fact, hear him speak when he used his mouth. Nobody else in the mess hall had spoken with their mouth during the entire meal. Jared suddenly realized that the last time he had heard anyone else speak was when Lieutenant Cloud offered his farewells. Speaking out loud was weird. Sorry, he said on a general band. Everyone returned to their food. You're making a fool of yourself. Stephen Seaborg, down the table, said to Jared. It was just a joke, Jared said. It was just a joke, Seaborg said, mockingly. Idiot. You're not very nice, Jared said. You're not very nice, Seaborg said. Jared may be an idiot, but at least he can think up his own words, Pauling said. Hey, shut up, Pauling, Seaborg said. No one asked you to butt in. Jared began to respond when an image popped up in his visual field. Squat, misshapen humans were arguing about something in high-pitched voices. One of them began to mock the other by repeating his words, like Seaborg had been doing to Jared. Who are these people? Seaborg asked. Pauling, too, looked mystified. Gabriel Brahe's voice popped into their heads. They're children, he said. Immature humans and they're having an argument. I'll have you note they are arguing just like you were. He started it, Seaborg said, looking for Brahe in the mess hall. He was at a far table, eating with other officers. He didn't turn to look at the trio. One of the reasons the real-born don't trust us is because they're convinced we're children, Brahe said. Emotionally stunted children in adult-sized bodies. And the thing about that is... They're right. We have to learn to control ourselves like adults do, just like all humans do. 
and we have far less time to learn how to do it. But, Seaborg began. Quiet, Brahe said. Seaborg, after our afternoon drill, you have an assignment. From your brain pal, you can access Phoenix's data net. You get to research etiquette and interpersonal conflict resolution. Find out as much as you can and share it with the rest of the eighth by the end of the evening. Do you understand me? Yes, Seaborg said. He glanced over at Jared accusingly and then lapsed silently into his food. Dirac, you get an assignment, too. Read Frankenstein. See where it takes you. Yes, sir, Jared said. And don't drool any more soup, Brahe said. You look like an ass. Brahe dropped his connection. Jared looked over to Pauling. How come you didn't get in trouble? He asked her. Pauling dipped the spoon into her soup. My food stays where it's supposed to, she said, and swallowed. And I don't act like a child. And then she stuck out her tongue. The afternoon drill introduced the eighth to their weapon, the MP-35A MP assault rifle. The rifle was bonded to its owner by use of BrainPal authentication. From that point forward, only its owner or another human with a BrainPal could fire the rifle. This cut down on the chance of a CDF soldier having his own weapon used against him. The MP-35A was additionally modified for Special Forces soldiers to take advantage of their integration abilities. Among other things, the MP-35A could be fired remotely. Special Forces had used this ability to fatally surprise any number of curious aliens over the years. The MP-35A was more than a simple rifle. It could at the discretion of the soldier using it, fire rifled bullets, shot, grenades, or small guided missiles. It also featured flamethrower and particle beam settings. Any of this panoply of ammunition was constructed on the fly by the MP-35A out of a heavy metallic block of nanobots. Jared wondered idly how the rifle managed the trick. His brain pal obligingly unpacked the physics behind the weapon, leading to a massive and terribly inconvenient unpacking of general physical principles while the eighth was on the shooting range. Naturally, all of this unpacked information was forwarded onto the rest of the squad, all of whom looked over at Jared with varying levels of irritation. Sorry, Jared said. By the end of the long afternoon, Jared had mastered the MP-35A and its myriad of options. Jared and another recruit named Joshua Letterman focused on the options the MP allowed for its rifled bullets, experimenting with different designs of the bullets and assessing the advantages and disadvantages of each, duly noting each to the other members of the squad. When they were ready to move on to the other ammunition options available to them, Jared and Letterman took ample advantage of the information about those weapons fed in by other members of the 8th to master those options as well. Jared had to admit that whatever personal problems he might have with Stephen Seaborg, if he ever needed someone to wield a flamethrower for him, Seaborg was going to be his first choice. Jared told him so as they hiked back to the barracks. Seaborg ignored him and pointedly started a private conversation with Andrea Gelman. After dinner, Jared staked out a spot on the steps of the barracks. After a brief tutorial from his brain pal, and taking care to cache his explorations so as not to repeat his embarrassing data spill from earlier in the day, he signed on the Phoenix's public data net 
and secured a copy of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, revised 3rd edition, 1831. Eight minutes later, he finished it, and was in something of a state of shock, intuiting, correctly, why Brahe had him read it. He and all the members of the Eighth, all of the Special Forces soldiers, were the spiritual descendants of the pathetic creature Victor Frankenstein had assembled from the bodies of the dead and then jolted into life. Jared saw how Frankenstein felt pride in creating life, but how he feared and rejected the creature once that life had been given, how the creature lashed out, killing the doctor's family and friends, and how Creator and Created were finally consumed in a pyre, their fates interlocked. The illusions between the monster and the special forces were all too obvious. And yet, as Jared considered whether it was the fate of the special forces to be as misunderstood and reviled by the real-born as the monster was by his creator, he thought back on his brief encounter with Lieutenant Cloud. Cloud certainly didn't seem terrified or repulsed by Jared. He had offered his hand to him, a gesture that Victor Frankenstein pointedly refused from the monster he created. Jared also considered the fact that while Victor Frankenstein was the creator of the monster, his creator, Mary Shelley, implicitly offered pity and empathy to the monster. The real human in this story was a rather more complex person than the fictional one, and more inclined toward the creature than its fictional creator. He thought about that for a good solid minute. Jared greedily sought out links to the text, quickly alighting on the famous 1931 motion picture version of the story and devouring it at ten times speed, only to find himself greatly disappointed. The eloquence of Shelley's monster was replaced by a sad, shambling grunter. Jared quickly sampled other filmed versions, but was continually disappointed. The monster he identified with was almost nowhere to be seen in any of these, even in the versions that paid lip service to the original text. Frankenstein's monster was a joke. Jared gave up on filmed versions before he reached the end of the 21st century. Jared tried another tack and sought out stories of other created beings, and was soon acquainted with Friday, R. Daniil Oliva, Data, Hal, Der Machinin Mensch, Astro Boy, the various Terminators, Chana Fortuna, Joe the Robot Bastard, and all manner of other droids, robots, computers, replicants, clones, and genetically engineered Watsits that were as much the spiritual descendants of Frankenstein's monster as he was. Curious, Jared moved backward in time from Shelley to find Pygmalion, golems, homunculi, and clockwork automatons. He read and watched the sad and often dangerous humorlessness of many of these creatures and how it was used to make them objects of pity and comic relief. He now understood why Brahe was touchy about the whole sense of humor issue. Implicit in that touchiness was the idea that special forces were misrepresented in their depictions by the real-born, or so Jared thought, until he went searching for literature or recorded entertainments featuring the special forces as main characters. There were none. 
The colonial era was rife with entertainments about the colonial defense forces and its military battles and events. The battle for Armstrong seemed a particularly revisited topic, but in none of them were the special forces even hinted at. The closest thing was a series of pulpy novels published on Rama Colony featuring the adventures of a secret force of erotic superhuman soldiers who mostly overcame fictional alien species by having energetic sex with them until they surrendered. Jared, who at this time understood sex, largely in the reproductive sense, wondered why anyone would think this was a viable way to conquer one's enemies. He decided that he was probably missing something important about this sex thing and filed it away to ask Brahi about later. In the meantime, there was the mystery of why, from the point of view of the fiction output of the colonies, the special forces didn't exist. But that was for another night, perhaps. Jared was eager to share his current explorations with his squadmates. He uncashed his findings and released them to the others. As he did, he became aware that he wasn't the only one sharing discoveries. Brahe had assigned homework to the majority of the eighth, and these explorations came flooding into his perception. Among them, etiquette and the psychology of conflict resolution from Seaborg, whom Jared could sense rolling his eyes at almost all of the material he was passing along, major battles of the colonial defense forces from Brian Michelson, animated cartoons from a recruit named Jerry Yukawa, human physiology from Sarah Pauling. Jared made a note to make fun of her later for giving him grief about his own assignment earlier in the day. His brain pal merrily began to unpack everything Jared's mates had learned. Jared leaned back into the stairs and watched the sunset as the information branched and expanded. Phoenix's sun had well and truly set by the time Jared had unpacked all his new learning. He sat inside the small pool of light illuminating the barracks and watched Phoenix's analog to insects zip around the light. One of the more ambitious of these small creatures landed on Jared's arm and plunged a needle-like proboscis into his flesh to suck out his fluids. A few seconds later, it was dead. The nanobots in Jared's smart blood, alerted to their situation by his brain pal, self-immolated inside the tiny animal using the oxygen they carried as a combustible agent. The poor creature crisped from the inside. Minuscule and almost invisible wisps of smoke vented out of its spicules. Jared wondered who it was who programmed that sort of defensive response into his brain pal and smart blood. It seemed hateful of life in its intent. Maybe the real-born are right to fear us, Jared thought. From inside the barracks, Jared could perceive his squadmates arguing about what they had learned that night. Seaborg just declared Frankenstein's monster a bore. Jared launched himself inside to defend the monster's honor. During the morning and afternoons of the first week, the Eighth learned to fight, to defend, and to kill. In the evenings, they learned everything else, including some things Jared suspected were of questionable value. In the early evening of the second day, Andrea Gelman introduced the eighth to the concept of profanity, which she picked up at lunch and shared just before dinner. At dinner, members of the eighth enthusiastically told each other to pass the fucking salt, you fucking sack of shit, 
until Brahe told them to quit that goddamn shit, cocksuckers, because it got old pretty goddamn quick. There was general agreement that Brahe was correct, until Gelman taught the squad to swear in Arabic. On the third day, members of the Eighth asked for and received permission to enter the mess hall kitchens and use the ovens and certain ingredients. The next morning, the other training squads at Camp Carson were presented with enough sugar cookies for every recruit and their superior officers. On the fourth day, the members of the Eighth tried to tell each other jokes they had found on the Phoenix data net and mostly failed to make them work. By the time their brain pals unpacked the context of the joke, it was no longer funny. Only Sarah Pauling seemed to be laughing most of the time, and it was eventually determined she was laughing because she thought it was funny that none of the rest of them could tell a joke. No one else thought that was funny, to which Pauling laughed hard enough to fall off her cot. They all agreed that was funny. Also, puns were all right. On the fifth day, during which the afternoon was spent in an informational session about the disposition of the human colonies and their relationship with other intelligent species, which was to say, bad all the time, the Eighth critically evaluated pre-colonial era speculative fiction and entertainments about interstellar wars with aliens. The verdicts were reasonably consistent. The War of the Worlds met with approval until the ending, which struck the Eighth as a cheap trick. Starship troopers had some good action scenes, but required too much unpacking of philosophical ideas. They liked the movie better, even though they recognized it was dumber. The Forever War made most of the Eighth unaccountably sad. The idea that a war could go on that long was almost unfathomable to a group of people who were a week old. After watching Star Wars, everyone wanted a lightsaber and was irritated that the technology for them didn't really exist. Everyone also agreed the Ewoks should all die. Two classics stuck with them. Ender's Game delighted them all. Here were soldiers who were just like them, except smaller. The main character was even bred to fight alien species like they were. The next day, the members of the Eighth greeted each other with the salutation, Ho, Ender, until Brahe told them to knock it off and pay attention. The other was Charlie's Homecoming, one of the last books before the colonial era began, and one of the last books, therefore, to be able to imagine a universe other than what it was, one where the alien species humanity would meet greeted them with a welcome instead of a weapon. The book was eventually adapted into a film. By that time it was clear it wasn't science fiction, but fantasy, and a bitter one at that. It was a flop. The members of the Eighth were transfixed by both the book and film, captivated by a universe they could never have, and one which would never have had them because they wouldn't be needed. On the sixth day, Jared and the rest of the Eighth finally figured out what that sex thing was all about. On the seventh day, and as a direct consequence of the sixth day, they rested. They're not of questionable value, Pauling said to Jared about the things they had learned as they lay together in her cot late on the seventh day, intimate but not sexual. Maybe all of these things don't have any use in themselves, but they bring all of us closer together. We are closer together, Jared agreed. Not just like this. 
Pauling pressed herself into Jared briefly and then released. Closer as people, as a group. All of those things you mentioned are silly, but they're training us how to be human. It was Jared's turn to press himself into Pauling, snuggling into her chest. Mm, I like being human, he said. I like you being human, too, Pauling said, and then audibly giggled. For fuck's sake, you two, Seaborg said. I'm trying to sleep over here. Grump, Pauling said. She looked down at Jared to see if he would add anything. But he had fallen asleep. She kissed him lightly on the top of his head and then joined him. In your first week, you physically trained to do all the things real-born soldiers can do, Brahe said. Now it's time to train you to do things only you can do. The eighth stood at the beginning of a long obstacle course. We've already run this course, said Luke Golstrand. Good of you to notice, Golstrand, Brahe said. For your observational skills, you get to be the first one to run it today. Stay here. The rest of you spread out over the length of the course, please, as equally as possible. Presently, members of the Eighth were strung along the course. Brahe turned to Gulstrand. You see the course? he asked. Yes, Gulstrand said. Do you think you could run it with your eyes closed? No, Gulstrand said. I don't remember where everything is. I'd trip over something and kill myself. Do you all agree? Brahe asked. There were pings of affirmation. And yet, all of you will run this course with your eyes closed before we leave here today. Because you have an ability that will allow you to do this. Your integration with your squad members. From around the squad came varying levels of skepticism. We use our integration to talk and to share data, said Brian Michelson. This is something entirely different. No, not different at all, Brahe said. The nighttime assignments of the last week were not just punishments and frivolity. You already knew that through your brain pal and your pre-birth conditioning you could learn quickly by yourself. In the last week, without realizing it, you've learned to share and absorb immense amounts of information between yourselves. There is no difference between that information and this. Pay attention. Jared gasped audibly, as did other members of the Eighth. In his head was not only the presence of Gabriel Brahe, but an intimate sensation of his physical presence and personal situation, overlaid on Jared's own consciousness. Look through my eyes, Brahe said. Jared focused on the command, and then had a sickening sense of vertigo as his perspective wheeled from his own vantage point to Brahe's. Brahe panned left and right, and Jared saw himself looking toward Brahe. Brahe snapped off the view. It gets easier the more you do it, Brahe said. And from now on, in every combat practice, you will do it. Your integration gives you situational awareness that is unique in this universe. All intelligent species share information in combat however they can. Even real-born soldiers keep a communication channel open through their brain pals during battle. But only special forces have this level of sharing, this level of tactical awareness. It's at the heart of how we work and how we fight. As I said, last week you covered the basics of fighting like the real-born. You learned how to go into combat as an individual. Now it's time to learn to fight like special forces. 
to integrate your combat skills with your squad. You will learn to share, and you will learn to trust what is shared with you. It will save your life, and it will save the life of your squad mates. This will be the hardest and most important thing you learn. So pay attention. Brahe turned back to Gulstrand. Now, close your eyes. Gulstrand hesitated. I don't know if I can keep my eyes closed, he said. You're going to have to trust your squad, Brahe said. I trust the squad, Gulstrand said. I just don't trust myself. This got a sympathetic round of pings. That's part of the exercise as well, Brahe said. Off you go. Gulstrin closed his eyes and took a step. From his vantage point halfway down the course, Jared could see Jerry Yukawa in the first position, lean in slightly, as if physically attempting to close the distance between his mind and Gulstrin's. Gulstrin's passage through the obstacle course was slow but became progressively steadier, just before reaching Jared and just after balancing on a wood beam suspended over mud, Gulstrin began to smile. He had become a believer. Jared felt Gulstrin reach for his point of view. Jared gave him full access to his senses and passed along a feeling of encouragement and assurance. He sensed Gulstrin receiving it and briefly passing along his thanks. Then Gulstrin focused on scaling the rope wall Jared stood to the side of. At the top, he felt Gulstrand move on to the next squad member in the line, fully confident. By the end of the course, Gulstrand was moving nearly at full speed. Excellent, Brahe said. Gulstrand, take over that last position. Everybody else move down one position. Yukawa, you're up. Two run-throughs later, not only were members of the squad sharing their perspective with the squad mate running the course, the squad mate on the course was sharing his shared perspective with them, giving everyone who hadn't run through the course a preview of what was coming up next. The next run-through after that had the squad mates on the side sharing vantage points with the person one station up from them, so they could better help the person on the course when they shifted into the position. By the time Jared was himself on the court, the entire squad had fully integrated their perspectives and were getting the hang of quickly sampling another perspective and picking out the relevant information without breaking from their own point of view. It was like being in two places at once. When Jared was on the course himself, he exulted in the strange intelligence of it all, at least until the beams over the mud, when his borrowed visual vantage point suddenly wheeled away from where his feet were. Jared missed his footing and fell flat into the mud. Sorry about that, said Stephen Seaborg a few seconds later as Jared pulled himself out, eyes open. I got bit by something. Distracted me. Bullshit, Alan Milliken sent to Jared privately. I was one stationed down and looking right at him. He didn't get bit. Brahe cut in. Seaborg, when you're in combat, letting a squad mate get killed because of a bug bite is the sort of thing that gets you on the unfortunate side of an airlock, he said. Keep it in mind. Dirac, keep moving. Jared closed his eyes and put one foot in front of the other. What does Seaborg have against me anyway? Jared asked Pauling. The two of them were practicing fighting with their combat knives. The squad members practiced for five minutes with each other member of the squad, with their integration sense on full. 
Fighting someone who is intimately aware of your internal state of mind made it an interesting extra challenge. You really don't know, Pauling said, circling with her knife held casually in her left hand. It's two things. One, he's just a jerk. Two, he likes me. Jared stopped circling. What? he said, and Pauling attacked viciously, fainting right and then slashing upward toward Jared's neck with her left hand. Jared stumbled backward and right to avoid the slashing. Pauling's knife switched hands and stabbed downward, missing Jared's leg by about a centimeter. Jared righted himself and settled into a defensive position. You distracted me, he said, circling again. You distracted yourself, Pauling said. I just took advantage of it when it happened. You won't be happy until you cut open an artery, Jared said. I won't be happy until you shut up and focus on trying to kill me with that knife, Pauling said. You know, Jared began, and suddenly leaned back. He felt Pauling's intent to slash a fraction of a second before she made her lunge. Before she could pull back, Jared leaned back in, inside the reach of her extended arm, and brought up the blade in his right hand to touch it lightly to her ribcage. Before it got there, Pauling brought her head up and jammed it into the bottom of Jared's jaw. There was an audible clack as Jared's teeth slammed together. Jared's field of vision whited out. Pauling took advantage of Jared's stunned pause to step back and sweep his legs out from under him, spilling him flat on his back. When Jared came to, Pauling had pinned his arms with her legs and held her knife directly on top of a carotid artery. You know, Pauling said, mocking Jared's last words. If this were real combat... I'd have sliced four of your arteries by now and moved on to whoever was next. Pauling sheathed her knife and took her knees off his arms. Good thing we're not in real combat, Jared said, and propped himself up. About Seaborg, Pauling punched Jared square in the nose. His head snapped back. Pauling's knife was back at his throat and her legs pinning his arms a fraction of a second later. What the hell? Jared said. Our five minutes aren't up. Pauling said. We're still supposed to be fighting. But you... Jared began. Pauling jabbed him in the neck and drew smart blood. Jared exclaimed aloud. There's no but you, Pauling said. Jared, I like you, but I've noticed that you don't focus. We're friends, and I know you think that means that we can have a nice conversation while we're doing this, but I swear to you that the next time you give me an opening like you did just now, I'm going to cut your throat. Your smart blood will probably keep you from dying, and it'll keep you from thinking that just because we're friends doesn't mean I won't seriously hurt you. I like you too much, and I don't want you to die in real combat because you're thinking about something else. The things we'll be fighting in real combat aren't going to pause for conversation. You'd watch out for me in combat, Jared said. You know I would, Pauling said. But this integration thing only goes so far, Jared. You have to watch out for yourself. Brahe told them their five minutes were up. Pauling let Jared off the floor. I'm serious, Jared, Pauling said, after she hauled him up. Pay attention next time, or I'll cut you bad. I know, Jared said, and touched his nose. Or punch me. True, Pauling said, and smiled. I'm not picky. So all that about Seaborg liking you was just to distract me, Jared said. Oh, no, Pauling said. It's completely true. Oh, Jared said.
Pauling laughed aloud. There you go. Getting distracted again, she said. Sarah Pauling was one of the first to get shot. She and Andrea Gelman were ambushed as they were scouting a small valley. Pauling went down immediately, shot in the head and the neck. Gelman managed to identify the locations of the shooters before a trio of shots in the chest and abdomen brought her down. In both cases, their integration with the rest of the squad collapsed. It felt as if they were ripped out bodily from the squad's pooled consciousness. Others fell in short order, gutting the squad and sending its remaining members into disarray. It was a bad war game for the Eighth. Jerry Yukawa compounded the problem by getting shot in the leg. The training suit he was wearing registered the hit and froze the mobility to the limb. Yukawa fell mid-stride and barely kicked his way behind the boulder Catherine Berkeley had gotten behind a few seconds before. You were supposed to lay down suppressing fire, Yukawa said accusingly. I did, Berkeley said. I am. There is one of me and five of them. You do better. The five members of the 13th training squad who had trapped Yukawa and Berkeley behind the boulder sent another volley their way. The members of the 13th felt the simulated mechanical kick of their training rifles, while their brain pals visually and orally simulated the bullets tearing down the tiny cul-de-sac of a valley. Yukawa and Berkeley's brain pals correspondingly simulated some of these bullets smacking the bulk of the boulder and others whining as they shot past. The bullets weren't real, but they were as real as fake could get. We could use a little help here, Yukawa said to Stephen Seaborg, who was the commander for the exercise. We hear you, Seaborg said, and then turned to look at Jared, his only other surviving soldier, who was standing mutely looking at him. Four members of the Eighth were still standing, only figuratively speaking in the case of Yukawa, while seven members of the Thirteenth were roaming the forest. The odds weren't good. Stop looking at me like that, Seaborg said. This isn't my fault. I didn't say anything, Jared said. You were thinking it, Seaborg said. I wasn't thinking it either, Jared said. I was reviewing data. Of what? Seaborg asked. Of how the Thirteenth moves and thinks, Jared said. From the other members of the Eighth before they died... I'm trying to see if there's something we can use. Can you do it a little quicker? Yukawa said. Things are looking mighty bleak on this end. Jared looked over to Seaborg. Seaborg sighed. Fine, he said. I'm open to suggestion. What have you got? You're going to think I'm crazy, Jared said. But there's something I've noticed. So far, neither us nor them look up very much. Seaborg looked up into the forest canopy, looking at the sunlight peek through the canopy of native Terran trees and their phoenix equivalent, thick bamboo-like stalks that threw off impressive branches. The two types of flora did not compete genetically. They were naturally incompatible because they developed on different worlds, but they competed for sunlight, reaching as far into the sky as possible and branching thickly to offer scaffolding for leaves and leaf equivalents to do their photosynthetic work. We don't look up because there's nothing up there but trees, Seaborg said. Jared started counting off seconds in his head. He got as far as seven before Seaborg said, Oh, oh, Jared agreed. He popped up a map. 
We're here. Yukawa and Berkeley are here. There's forest all the way between here and there. And you think we can get from here to there in the trees, Seaborg said. That's not the question, Jared said. The question is whether we can do it fast enough to keep Yukawa and Berkeley alive and quietly enough not to get ourselves killed. Jared quickly discovered that walking through the trees was an idea better in theory than in execution. He and Seaborg almost fell twice within the first two minutes. Moving from branch to branch required rather more coordination than either expected. The phoenix tree's branches were not nearly as load-bearing as they assumed, and the Terran trees featured a surprising number of dead branches. Their progress was slower and louder than they would have liked. A rustling came from the east. In separate trees, Jared and Seaborg hugged trunks and froze. Two members of the 13th walked out of the brush thirty meters away and six meters below Jared's position. The two were alert and wary, looking and listening for their quarry. They didn't look up. Out of the corner of his eye, Jared saw Seaborg slowly reach toward his MP. Wait, Jared said. We're still in their peripheral vision. Wait until we're behind them. The two soldiers edged forward, putting Jared and Seaborg behind them. Seaborg nodded to Jared. They silently unslung their MPs, stabilized as best they could, and sighted in on the backs of the soldiers. Seaborg gave the order. Bullets flew in a short burst. The soldiers stiffened and fell. The rest have Yukawa and Berkeley pinned down, Seaborg said. Let's get cracking. He set off. Jared was amused at how Seaborg's take-charge spirit, so recently dampened, had suddenly returned. Ten minutes later, Yukawa and Berkeley were down to the last of their ammunition, and Jared and Seaborg caught sight of the remaining members of the 13th. To the left of them, eight meters below, two soldiers were camped behind a large fallen tree. To the right, and about thirty meters forward, another pair were behind a collection of boulders. These soldiers were keeping Yukawa and Berkeley busy while the fifth soldier quietly flanked their position. All of them had their backs to Jared and Seaborg. I'll take the ones by the log, you take the ones at the boulders, Seaborg said. I'll tell Berkeley about the flanker, but tell her not to get him until we get our guys. No point giving ourselves away. Jared nodded. Now that Seaborg was feeling confident, his planning was getting better. Jared filed that datum away to consider later and moved to steady himself in their tree, putting his back against the trunk and hooking his left foot under a lower branch for additional support. Seaborg moved one branch lower on the tree to get around a branch that was impeding his sight line. The branch he stepped on, dead, cracked loudly under his weight and collapsed, falling out of the tree in what seemed the loudest possible way. Seaborg lost his footing and grabbed wildly at the branch below where he had stepped, dropping his MP. Four soldiers on the ground turned, looked up, and saw him dangling there helplessly. They raised their weapons. Shit, Seaborg said, and looked up at Jared. Jared fired in automatic burst mode at the two soldiers at the boulders. One seized up and fell. The other dove around the boulders. Jared swiveled and fired on the soldiers at the log. He didn't hit anything, but unnerved them long enough to switch his MP to guided missile mode and fire at the space between the two soldiers. 
The simulated rocket peppered both with virtual bits of shrapnel. They fell. Jared turned just in time to see the remaining soldier at the boulder lining up her shot. He launched a guided missile at her as she pulled her trigger. Jared felt his ribs go stiff and painful as his training suit constricted and fumbled his MP. He'd been shot, but the fact he didn't drop out of the tree told him he was still alive. Training exercise. Jared was so pumped full of adrenaline that he thought he might pee himself. A little help here, Seaborg said, and reached over with his left hand for Jared to pull him up, just as the fifth soldier, who had circled back, shot him in the right shoulder. Seaborg's entire arm stiffened in its suit. He let go of the branch he was dangling from. Jared grabbed at his left hand and caught him before his fall had gained momentum. Jared's left leg, still hooked under its branch by the foot, strained painfully from the additional load put on it. On the ground, the soldier lined up his shot. Virtual bullets or not, Jared knew if he were shot, the stiffening of his suit would make him drop Seaborg and probably fall himself. Jared reached over with his right hand, grabbed his combat knife, and threw hard. The knife buried itself in the meat of the soldier's left thigh. The soldier collapsed, screaming and pawing gingerly at the knife, until Berkeley came up behind him and shot him into immobility. The Eighth wins the war game, Jared heard Brahe say. I'm relaxing the training suits now for everyone who is still frozen. Next war game matchups in thirty minutes. The pressure on Jared's right side was suddenly and considerably relieved, as was the stiffness of Seaborg's suit. Jared hauled him up, and then they both carefully picked their way to the forest floor to retrieve their weapons. The unfrozen members of the 13th were waiting for them, breaking off from their squadmate, who was still moaning on the ground. You fuck, one of them said, getting directly into Jared's face. You threw a knife into Charlie. You're not supposed to try to kill anyone. That's why it's called a war game. Seaborg jammed in between Jared and the soldier. Tell that to your friend, asshole he said. If your friend had shot us, I would have dropped eight meters without any way to control my fall. He didn't seem particularly worried about me dying as he was lining up his shot. Jared knifing your friend saved my life, and your friend will survive. So fuck him and fuck you. Seaborg and the soldiers sized each other up for another few seconds before the other soldier turned his head, spat on the ground, and walked back to his squad mate. Thanks. Jared said to Seaborg. Seaborg glanced over to Jared, and then to Yukawa and Berkeley. Let's get out of here, he said. We've got another war game. He stomped off. The three of them followed. On the way back, Seaborg dropped back to pace Jared. It was a good idea to use the trees, he said. And I'm glad you caught me before I dropped. Thank you. You're welcome, Jared said. I still don't like you much. Seaborg said, but I'm not going to have a problem with you anymore. I'll take that, Jared said. It's a start anyway. Seaborg nodded and picked up his pace again. He was silent the rest of the way in. Well, look who we have here, Lieutenant Cloud said, as Jared entered the shuttle with the other former members of the 8th. They were on their way back to Phoenix Station for their first assignments. Is my pal Jared. Hello, Lieutenant Cloud, Jared said. It's good to see you again. 
Hey, it's Dave, Cloud said. Done with your training, I see. Damn, I wish my training had just been two weeks. We still cover a lot, Jared said. I don't doubt that in the least, Cloud said. So, what's your assignment, Private Dirac? Where will you be headed? I've been assigned to the kite, Jared said. Me and two of my friends, Sarah Pauling and Stephen Seaborg. Jared pointed at Pauling, who had already sat down. Seaborg had yet to get on the shuttle. I've seen the kite, Cloud said. Newer ship, nice lines. Never been on it, of course. You special forces types keep to yourselves. That's what they tell me, Jared said. Andrea Gelman came on board, bumping Jared slightly. She pinged an apology to him. Jared looked over and smiled. Well, looks like it's going to be a full-up flight, Cloud said. You can sit up in the co-pilot seat again if you like. Uh, thanks, Jared said, and glanced over to Pauling. I think I'll sit with my other friends this time. Cloud looked over at Pauling. Oh, that's entirely understandable, Cloud said. Although, remember, you owe me some new jokes. I hope in all that training you did, they gave you some time to work on your sense of humor. Jared paused for a minute, recalling his first conversation with Gabriel Brahe. Lieutenant Cloud, did you ever read Frankenstein? He asked. Mm, never did, Cloud said. I know the story. Saw the most recent movie version not too long ago. The monster talked, which I'm told means it's closer to the actual book than not. What did you think of it? Jared said. It was all right, Cloud said. The acting was a little over the top. I felt sorry for the monster, and the Dr. Frankenstein character was something of an asshole. Why do you ask? Well, just curious, Jared said, and nodded toward the seating compartment, which was now almost completely full. We all read it. Gave us a lot to think about. Ah, said Cloud. I see. Jared, uh, allow me to share with you my philosophy of human beings. It can be summed up in four words. I like good people. You seem like good people. I can't say that's all that matters to everyone, but it's what matters to me. And that's good to know, Jared said. I think my philosophy runs the same way. Well, then we're going to get along just fine, Cloud said. Now, any new jokes? I might have a few, Jared said.